From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. This holiday week, we're thankful for all the inspiring guests who've come on At Liberty to share their stories and their work. I'm so happy that today we're bringing back one of my favorite conversations of the year with novelist and attorney Sergio De La Pava. We originally recorded this episode live at the Brooklyn Public Library, and the conversation was an absolute gem. Sergio De La Pava won the Penn Bingham Prize for his debut novel, A Naked Singularity, in 2012, and recently released Lost Empress, a postmodern epic about football, criminal justice, Joni Mitchell, and just about everything in between. Mr. De La Pava is not only the author of critically acclaimed books, he's also a full-time public defender, having represented thousands of criminal defendants over the last two decades. We discussed both his literary and legal work, as well as his approach to life. I hope you enjoy this deep cut from the At Liberty Archives. Good evening. Thanks very much for coming out. And thanks very much to the Brooklyn Public Library for hosting At Liberty uh, for the second time. I just wanted to maybe start by asking Sergio to do a brief reading uh, to begin our conversation tonight. Thank you all for being here. Nice to see you. All right, let's see. What would education look like if its ultimate goal were incarceration? Where would it occur? There are many fertile possibilities. For example, in East New York, Brooklyn, you have Cypress Hills Houses, a housing project made up of 15 seven-story buildings that at times seems more penal than anything the New York City Department of Correction could ever devise. Locations like that, where shots were once fired during a mayoral press conference announcing a crackdown on guns, are their own kind of special training. Nuno's from Cyprus, and starting at age 13, has extensively engaged in precisely the kind of conduct that generally results in incarceration. He has watched as pretty much everyone he knows fulfilled that expectation, so he has, over the years, spent significant time imagining what it must be like to be in. And this has not been fanciful imagining either, but rather the kind that seems based on at least probability. The expected result might be someone for whom sudden incarceration would not be the all-out electric shock it would be for others. But there are events for which there is no such thing as adequate preparation, and one of them is the suddenly savage restriction of your motility. Because freedom is one of those things only adequately experienced in the negation, as with its sudden absence, that squeezing the prisoner feels is the sensation of their soul dying. The bus with Nuno rattles over the only bridge to Rikers Island, and he forces himself to observe. The razor wire coils only a certain way, the DNA of the island. This is a darkness that truly descends. A sudden desperation radiates from his skin. He is being held, and claustrophobia fills his lungs. This is low-grade terror, but still terror, and his response is an agonized search for dissociation. Nuno thinks how his only ally now is Rene Descartes. Descartes basically started that whole mind-body dualism, and this is the only out he sees right now. If two things are separable, then it stands to reason that one can intentionally separate them. 
Nuno is going to do this. They can put him in Rikers, but they can't make him live there. There's two of him, and only one's going in. Thank you very much. Thank you very much again for joining us for the podcast. I that was an easy yes. I mean, New York Public Library and the ACLU, I'm not saying no to that. So <laughs> thank you uh, for the invitation. Well, we're very happy to have you. I think the two things struck me about this passage. One, it stuck out because my wife used to teach in Cypress Hills at PA 79. And the second was the juxtaposition that you pose between the school-to-prison pipeline and René Descartes the 17th century French philosopher. And this seemed to highlight your sort of dual existence as both a postmodern fiction writer and a public defender. So I wonder if you can tell us about how you conceptualize these dual roles. Are they two sides of the same coin or do they complement each other? I, I mean, I think there's some complementarity there in the sense that I have a legal career, I'm, but I've only really pr practiced law as a public defender, which I think um, being a public defender is a very artistic pursuit. And by that I mean whether you naturally inclined to be that kind of person or not, there's a certain generous openness that you need to have to be a public defender that I think also ends up to be a pretty useful thing to being an artist. And by that, I mean, when you start out as a public defender, I think I was 24 years old. If you start out from a closed position of I'm meeting this person, not this person who's done a bad thing, but I'm meeting a bad person who is not worthy of my respect or dignity or respectful collaboration, then you're not going to be an effective attorney in that context. And similarly, I think if you set out to create literary art, if the art that you create is going to involve even invented human beings, and it's probably a good idea to have some invented human beings in a novel, <laughs> you better bring some of that generosity to what humanity is, what people are, to that project as well. So I would say that um, a lot of the skills translate, maybe, is a good way of thinking of it. Well, it's interesting that you highlighted the need for openness, and we definitely get that sense from your literary work that you're open to the whole world of ideas almost all at the same time. I mean, I think one thing that also struck me is that few professions are more overworked than public defenders, and you don't exactly write the kind of books that one writes quickly. So it begs the question, how do you have the time <laughs> to do both, and why is it so important for you to continue to do both? That's a very nice thing to say because I don't feel for particularly productive. I've been writing a long time and I have three novels. And I guess if you look at the three of them stacked next to each other, it looks like, well, this guy's got a lot done. But if you realize that it's been like decades, it's, it doesn't <laughs> feel that way from the inside looking out. But it's probably true that I do like to constantly be busy and constantly um, have something that I'm working on that has a kind of shifting goal line. So my day's made up of Something will come across my desk and, and then maybe an hour later it's resolved. And that's very pleasurable. I think most people would, would agree. But I also um, like having uh, something that's very incremental that maybe a good day is I fixed that one sentence that was bothering me. And having that overarching kind of uh, thing uh, troubling me and bothering me is for some reason pleasurable to me. So I'm not doing this out of any kind of service notion or anything. I'm doing it because I strangely need to do it. 
Well, that does capture a bit of the duality in terms of putting out fires as a public defender versus working on these epic tomes. Yeah, with public defender, you can't turn to the client and be like, don't worry, I have this overarching mission and you're just a part of it. They're not really that interested in that. They want to know like what's going to happen on the case that you're representing them on. So it's a very discreet, kind of quick, did we win or lose? (laughs) You know, they're not interested in your evolution as an attorney so much. They're interested in them getting off of Rikers Island. Well, the most recent novel that you published is Lost Empress, which is a fantastic and has been very well received, but it's quite hard to describe. So I'll I'll ask you, how do you describe the novel? I mean, you've talked about it as both an entertainment and a protest. I think the narrator at early on in the book says, so what we're going to do here is it's just going to be an entertainment. We're not going to get too heavy. And then almost immediately, you know, sections like the one I just read pretty much intrude. So what happens to the poor narrator is he's not able to even fulfill that one minor thing that he wanted to do about keeping it light. So on the most overt level, what's happening is this kind of screwball comedy, football farce is being juxtaposed with this country's mass incarceration program and what it means to be incarcerated. But also underlying everything, I hope, is this notion that there, you know, there are many forms of incarceration, which I think Nuno is already driving at there, which is you can incarcerate a body or the body itself can be a form of incarceration for even people who aren't in prison. There are many other things that can imprison us because I happen to have this kind of weird belief that I think most people have but maybe don't come to terms with that we're kind of like more than our bodies, that we're souls and that we're trapped inside our bodies. That's probably going a little beyond what the ACLU usually has uh, as their topic. <laughs> but, but I think that even the most cynical, materialist people on some level believe that. And I have these debates with a lot of people because I have a lot of, despite what you said, I do have a lot of free time. And, I, and I, I, ha- I have these debates with people who are like, I'm very materialistic. I'm just this accident. A life is just a weird accident that happened. And when my body dies, I am convinced a thousand percent that that is the end of that. And I say, I, I, the fact that we are, you and I are sitting here right now having this discussion is the most bizarre thing that's ever happened. So I'm not too keen on just very quickly making assertions like the one you're making. I'm not as sure about that. And then I just jump off from that and, you know, 600 pages later, I don't know that I've resolved anything, but it was interesting to me. (laughs) And very interesting to the reader as well. I want to pick up on several of the themes that run through your work, but the criminal justice system is not just in this book, but also in your other pieces of fiction. So what is the interplay between your life inside the criminal justice system on a day-to-day basis and the themes that you choose to pick up in your fiction? No surprise, I find the criminal justice system fascinating. And that's not necessarily a compliment. I'm not saying it's necessarily a positive, but I do think that the criminal justice system is like so many things in this country that it asserts some really beautiful principles and then pretty consistently fails to live up to them. But at least it asserts them. I don't know. I mean, that feels like something. And then it also, you meet a lot of people. You meet, and clients are really fascinating to me, and they always have been. So it would feel, it would feel weird when I engage in novel writing, it would feel more artificial to leave all of that out than it does to organically, I hope, include it as part of just what I find to be fascinating about human nature. If you know, if you're a student of human nature or if you're in any way intrigued by the way human beings behave towards each other, you can do a lot worse than immerse yourself in the criminal justice system because you're seeing people under stress for things that they've already done, things they may want to do. You meet people who 
on some level know the correct way to get their lives in order, but then somehow keep sabotaging themselves. And I don't know why, but I find that fascinating on many levels because I feel like we're all kind of screwed up, but here's where you can see it like undeniably in stark contrast. Well, I know you've talked about the fact that you've had thousands of cases in your 20 plus years as a public defender, and clearly it requires a great deal of multitasking. And similarly, the book includes numerous stories within the one novel. Uh, And I'm wondering how you, what your process was for crafting such a huge story with so much inside of it. I mean, for those who haven't read it, it includes in full a petition written by a prisoner. It includes transcripts of 9-11 calls. It includes almost anything you can imagine. What was the process like to pull the actual book together. And I'm wondering, you know, it weighs in at about 700 pages now. Was the first draft longer or shorter? No, I don't really do drafts. I mean, what I do is I'm just very careful throughout. And then when I'm done, I'm pretty much done. There's other writers that'll produce a draft quickly and then kind of work off of that. I'm kind of the opposite. If I'm on page 500 of a 600-page book, I'm five-six of the way through. Maybe it's the lawyer in me. I like to be kind of methodical about it. But in terms of there's a low barrier of entry into the works is just because I think I'm probably a curious person. I don't like cocktail parties. I usually kind of retire to the corner. But if like the person I meet has an odd job, I'll grill them for 40 minutes because I just find that fascinating. You know, like I paint billboards. I'm like, oh, you're not going anywhere. We're going to spend an hour talking about what that means. Because I find pretty much anything about our society can be fascinating if you, again, with the openness, right? The artistry and openness are linked to me and just being open to new experience, open to letting things in as opposed to going through life excluding things and, and saying, not me, not my interest, not me. Well, again, that openness and that curiosity certainly comes through very strongly, but there's also a lot of facts in the book, whether it's about theoretical mathematics or historical events. What role does research play in your fiction writing? I think it's research that I've done out of interest, independent of the book. And now as I'm writing, I say, oh, this thing that I happen to know about actually fits here. And maybe what will happen when I throw it in is that somehow it'll deepen what is really the underlying message of everything I've written, which is that everything's kind of linked the way we are all kind of linked, what John Steinbeck would call like the giant soul that produces all the little souls. Not using those words, but that notion of an interconnected humanity and part of that is this notion that if you dig deep enough into anything, connections will start being made so that on the surface... Joni Mitchell's music career has nothing to do with an NFL work stoppage, but then the challenge becomes to somehow make it so that they don't clash and they're in the same key to use like a musical formula. Well, and there's a huge variety, but it's also sort of highbrow and lowbrow also. So your references include, as I mentioned, Descartes, but also you talk about sort of reality TV cooking shows. So you're talking about the things that interest you find their way into the book, but it seems that your interests are quite broad. How do you think about filtering all those different kinds of inputs into a single novel? Part of that is just me, because I remember when like I first started writing and 
like we were getting praise. And then my, I think my wife would look at me and be like, this is the idiot who watches Three's Company for the eight hours. I'm not that impressed. <laughs> and and that, that there's part of that openness is openness to like really bad stuff that somehow can help. Like I've just, I've been binging on Gilligan's Island. So yes, um, the openness goes both ways. It's not just with the theoretical physics. I also just find like kind of low level entertainment, entertaining, huh? But also in odd instances moving. I, I can be moved by like a really corny pop song sometimes, almost like to tears. I don't know why that is, but it interests me enough to explore it. I mean, I think Joni Mitchell is a supreme artist. That's not what I'm referring to, but I'm saying that I, I have that openness, I think, to the way that Gilligan's Island might have some connection to the work that Alan Guth did on cosmology. That it's not as counter as you would think at first blush. And then the challenge for me is to, when you're done reading, that hopefully you feel somewhat like that. And you talked about one of the main themes in this book is the NFL. And it's not just the NFL, but also the IFL, the Indoor Football League, which is like a minor league. It's fictitious, but it's based on real minor league football. And you have another piece, which I found really extraordinary, called The Day's Sale, which was published by Triple Canopy. And that addresses sort of mid-level professional boxing. You know, boxing and football are both sort of what one might consider lowbrow or mass entertainment. And I grew up watching lots of boxing and watching lots and lots of football. And I find myself now not being able to really watch either. So I'm interested in what continues to be alluring about those very violent sports. And then I think something is also specific about not just the greatest football player ever or the greatest boxer ever, but you've sort of talked about your fascination with the folks who toil, sort of the almost semi-anonymous gladiators who put their bodies on the line without the glory or the greatness. I think I respond to displays of will that have very little chance of success. So something like this indoor football league team called the Patterson Pork going up against the Dallas Cowboys who have won the last three Super Bowls. And what appeals to me about that is not the game itself or what the result will be, but kind of the moments before the game, and it's referred to in the book, it's not a spoiler, I don't think, I don't know, I'm not too great at determining what is or isn't, where the players themselves kind of know what's gonna happen. They know it's gonna be bad, they know that they're gonna be embarrassed, they know it's gonna be physically painful, but they go to the game and they still participate. I don't know why, but that's always been a fixation of mine. And so like with the piece that you're referring to, it kind of highlights two particular boxing fights that I thought highlighted that where the fighter would have been well within his rights to say, not my night, you got this one. And neither one, as you pointed out, was really like the highest level fighters that we've seen. They were kind of like on the cusp of stardom and like a loss wouldn't have been all that damaging to their careers and wouldn't have been damaging. You get paid before a boxing fight. It's not dependent on whether you win or lose. You get paid the same amount. You get paid before the fight. But yet it's almost as if they were responding to some higher obligation that they had created amongst themselves to be like, you don't quit in a boxing fight. It's an invented thing that some people have decided, but almost anybody in this room would quit in a boxing fight, you know, like right away. So they've internalized some kind of code that they've also just kind of invented and agreed to participate in. And then they, they feel that a responsibility to answer that. And I find that very moving. And the, the juxtaposition in the piece you're talking about is to Virginia Woolf, who I adore, and in particular to The Lighthouse, which is highest level novel writing in English. 
And Virginia Woolf, I think, was fascinated by a similar thing in the piece she wrote about the moth, where there's just no real intellectual reason for what you're doing other than just kind of persistence in the face of damaging odds. Well, persistence in the face of damaging odds, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to connect that to the life of a public defender or to the life of someone who was turned down by 88 publishers and then self-published a book. How much of yourself is reflected in this fascination with the person trying to climb that mountain? In terms of just creating invented obligations, I think my obligations with the book you're referring to were to have it be exactly what I wanted it to be and have it be a certain form of aesthetic object. And then once that was achieved, I never really tied my sense of self-worth or achievement to what would then happen by a publisher. Not to say that that wasn't uh, intensely frustrating, because I had a view of what this thing was that wasn't being shared by literally anyone. Um, So that's frustrating, but my version of getting up was just writing it and being like, no, don't compromise in what it looks like. Don't fit into any particular categories to try to gain. And then it was my wife, who also is a career-long public defender, who took that attitude with respect to getting it published and refused to say no and and kept fighting. And and really, all credit goes to her in terms of that aspect of it. I just do the writing, and then she kind of figures out where it goes from there. Did the audience or the prospective audience figure in at all? What... Who did you think would read your book? I think with The Naked Singularity, which is the first book you're referring to, I mean, I was really just sick and tired of these kind of very low-level depictions of our world. By our world, I mean attorneys who do indigent defense work in big cities. And if I say to you, public defender, and you immediately go to the Hollywood cliche, you think this is a person who is not only overwrought by too much work, but also just kind of on some level less skilled than the private attorney, when in reality it's not just that that's not true, but it's really quite the opposite. And the essay that I wrote recently points that out, which is, and let this be the free public service advice for the evening. If you ever find yourself arrested, God forbid, you're much better off with the public defender in New York City than you are with that guy who did your will or executed the closing of your house. Well, I certainly want to come back in more detail to your work as a public defender, but one of the things that's a sort of defining feature of your work is the ability to zoom in and then zoom out, get very specific to the experience of one of your characters, but also make these not entirely intuitive linkages to these broader ideas. And I'm wondering what importance you put on location in terms of your work. It's so micro while also being macro, but then it seems also that New York, specifically Rikers Island, Brooklyn, New Jersey, also feature very strongly in your work. So where do you prioritize location? It's funny because um, I kind of have this half-big feeling like I chose Patterson just because I like the alliteration of Patterson pork. (laughs) But then... (laughs) Patterson is an intensely fascinating person, as William Carlos Williams and others has a remarkable literary history. It has this thing called the Patterson Falls, which are like remarkable. And it also fits into this theme of it was once this great industrial hub has fallen on hard times, there's decay. So I wish I could answer that in a better, more intelligent way and say I, I decided on this location or I decided on this. And it's a lot more intuitive and dreamlike than that. And then what happens is once it's in Patterson, you can't imagine it being anywhere but Patterson, for example. You can't imagine what you were thinking not having picked Patterson. It it feels obvious afterwards. So the location does function in that way. It drives certain things. But ultimately, with me anyway, it's about the people 
and how they're shaped by their locations, Rikers Island being an obvious example of that. Well, the characters certainly are at the forefront and you have created some really unforgettable characters. You sort of mix these intimate portraits of marginalized people, whether it's a night shift 911 call operator or other folks that you highlight in the book, but then you also have these sort of, as you said, sort of slapstick, very archetypal type of characters where it's very silly almost at some points. And having represented thousands of clients, how much are those stories informing your work in fiction? I imagine that the characters that you've come across over your 20 plus years as a public (laughs) defender and the stories that you've heard from them can't help but provide fodder for your stories. Yeah, I mean, I said earlier that I find them just fascinating. Part of it is they almost all have had like really amazing experiences that not only have I not had, but I'm really far removed from and very unlikely to ever have. So immediately, I don't know if it's the novelist in me, but I really want to hear about them relay what it was like. And I will tell you this, we were talking earlier in the boxing context, the average client that I've had is a lot tougher not just physically, but emotionally than I am. Because most of the clients I meet have managed to piece together a kind of hard scrabble existence that looks like contentment until this event happened that, I'm, that is the reason I'm meeting them. But they've overcome a lot more adversity. I mean, I've had a pretty easy life, I think, certainly compared to the, my average client. So a great deal of what I find fascinating about what I do, by now I feel like I know what the relevant statutes are and I know what the judges are going to say, but every client is different because every client brings a different perspective, a different life experience. That's what changes. That's what has kept changing for over two decades and what has allowed me to keep doing the work. So we hear about burnout. You will never burn out if it's about the clients because you come to work today and you meet a different client. It doesn't matter if you've done that kind of case before, if you've dealt with that charge before, if you've had that trial before, you've never represented this individual before. And that's what keeps it new to me. And that's what I find thrilling about it. That's really interesting. I, w- I want to talk more about your relationship with your clients because I can't remember exactly where you wrote it, but you basically described it as a strange kind of relationship where there's both intimacy, but also a lot of formality. And you're not exactly friends, even if you spend quite a bit of time together. And your relationship is both necessary, but also part of this absurd system. And actually one word that you use to describe the space between your clients and the world that you live in is, is a chasm. And it's something that also came up in a conversation we had recently with Reginald Dwayne Betts, who's a poet and lawyer as well. So given that there is this chasm of experience between you and your clients, how much time do you actually get to speak with them? And how do you build that trusting relationship so that you can advocate on their behalf? I mean, it varies, right? So if I represent you on a very minor charge that may get resolved within, at the first court appearance, our interaction may, if you put a stopwatch to it, may be five minutes. But, I mean, I had a recent client who I met in 2015 and we resolved this case in 2019. And I mean, what I'm trying to hint at in that essay is that it did feel like a friendship But it was a weird kind of friendship because he always knew that I'd never had to go do the time. He always knew that I got to go home every night. And so if you're doing the job right, it should feel like a low-level friendship. But there's always going to be that distance of I'm the one, meaning the client is the one who's really facing a horrifying future. You're not. And that's true. And I'm glad I'm not facing a horrifying future. But that element is always there. The common refrain that I think public defenders hear when you tell them, hey, this offer is really good. 
Oh yeah, because you don't have to do the time. Mm, true, I guess, but that doesn't change the analysis here. This is actually a good offer. It's three years in prison, but you should take it. And that's a weird conversation to have with someone. This is a horrible thing that's happening to you, but you should accept it because if you don't accept it, something more horrible is gonna happen. And invariably, I've been doing this long enough, I know what's coming. You don't have to do the three years, that's why it doesn't seem like a long time. Understood, think about every professional interaction you have. The guy who's operating on you doesn't need his kidney removed. That's what it is, there's a professional distance here. You wouldn't want me falling apart the way you are because I need to keep a certain professional distance to do my job and hopefully convince a jury to quit you or convince a judge to give you a reduced charge or whatever. So that's what I meant when I said it's an odd relationship that we enter into. I think a public defender working in, in Manhattan or Brooklyn would probably enter into it with 300 people a year or something like that. So it can be strange. And you addressed again the, the plea bargain <clears throat> system that we live in, in this essay, which is forthcoming. It's going to be published as a part of a collection of essays commissioned by the ACLU covering landmark cases in which we were involved. And so you wrote about Gideon, which established the right to counsel for all criminal defendants and basically gave birth to the industry of public defense. Can you talk a little bit more about the plea system and, and how it seems so absurd and how it puts you face-to-face -face with your clients in a different way? You know, plea bargaining gets called a necessary evil. Or it gets, listen, we have to plea bargain. Have you seen the volume? What they don't mention is you created the volume that now results in this uh, system. These stats are familiar to a lot of people. I, I hate to constantly be parroting them, but they're so stark. You know, if you magically went back to like 1973, I think you have fewer than 300,000 people incarcerated in the United States. Today, it's like 2.3 million. So something like a 700% increase in the rate of incarceration, not the gross numbers. I'm accounting for the population burst. So something went crazy in these 40, 50 years that somehow American society decided, uh, yeah, I think the solution to a lot of problems is just to keep throwing people in jail. So then the volume rose to the point where if everyone, and there's this really uh, cool novel set in the 70s, I'm blanking on the name, where a public defender officer said, we're, we're not taking any more guilty pleas at all. And then the system falls apart. Because if that were truly a thing that occurred, if everybody said, we're not taking guilty pleas, we have a right to a trial, we're gonna exercise that right, we're gonna, you know, every case is gonna go to trial, the system would not be able to handle that. And so this artificial construct that we call the system knows that intuitively, knows that its survival is at stake. So then it does things like create something called a trial tax. Now, I don't know how deep you wanna get into this, but basically the trial tax tells you, if you plead guilty today, I'm gonna to give you this. But if you make me go to trial and you lose, you're gonna get four times that. So what happens is, is this like really fundamental right, this really glorious thing, which is a criminal trial, is being cut off at the knees out of fear. Now. You might say, well, that seems about right. And let me tell you that I've been doing this over two decades. And in the vast majority of cases, what would be an appropriate sentence for what the defendant has allegedly done is pretty clear. You know their history. You know what they're accused of doing. There's really no reason to enhance that sentence because they exercise their right to a trial. Now, there are exceptions. I'm not saying that's true in every case. But in the vast majority of cases, there is no legitimate reason to give a criminal defendant a far more heavy sentence because they exercise their right to trial. And yet that's endemic throughout the system in the whole country and whatever jurisdiction you go to, including here in New York, Brooklyn, Manhattan, wherever you go, that is just part and parcel of the system and it's an outrage. But it's an outrage we've learned to live with. 
So if I could wave a magic wand, every criminal case would end in a trial. And a lot of those would be convictions and that'd be fine because I'm not doing the time. No, not for that reason. Um, <laughs> uh, that would be fine because there would be a dignity to that. There would be a dignity to a prosecutor having approved the case beyond a reasonable doubt and giving breath to our constitution every day in these courtrooms instead of just folding over because, hey, you, know, you can't take this case to trial. So you've written three phenomenal books, represented thousands and thousands of clients. What's the next challenge? What are you most excited about doing next? I think I continue to represent clients in Manhattan and New York County Defender Services, but I'm also kind of splitting my time in which in my capacity at that office, I'm also doing a lot of work advocating for large-scale criminal justice reform, mostly related to issues that are most prevalent in New York. Now, you think New York is a progressive state. It's going to have a better system than elsewhere. And that can be true in some limited areas, but if you look at something like discovery, which is the process by which we get the evidence that the prosecutor has against your client, we're like the third worst state in the country. If you look to recently raise the age legislation just passed, and we were really central to making that happen. By we, I mean the whole entire New York indigent defense community, Legal Aid Society, ourselves, and other organizations. And can you just explain what raise the ages? Raise the age, basically, up until October 1st of last year, you were able to charge you know, 16-year-olds as adults for minor things like petty larceny. And... So the age of criminal responsibility was 16, and the only other state that had a criminal age of responsibility that low was North Carolina. Every other state had at least 17. Most of them had 18. The notion being that what is the age at which even a minor criminal offense, you should be treated as an adult? And so New York was way behind the curve. And um, through the work of like these indigent defense organizations and lobbying and just pointing the fact out that, hey, this is New York, you're in bad company here, this year was raised to 17, and next year it'll be raised again. This October. So that's an example of where you don't need a law degree. If you're like a concerned citizen and you want our criminal justice system to be fair, you can put pressure on the people who are in power for things like raise the age and things like discovery reform, things like cash bail reform, where whether or not you have money determines whether you're at Rikers Island or at Liberty and obviously all the ills that come with being at Rikers Island. So this is a great moment not just in New York, but nationally, for those of us who are starting to see this criminal justice reform work pay off. But we need to seize on that and we need to keep pressing on that. So I kind of divide my time evenly between that kind of stuff and then just also, it's a public defender office. Here's five people who need help and how can we help? And what about on the writing side? What do you have on tap at the moment? If you use an expansive enough definition of the word work, I'm working on a book now. <laughs> I know that feeling. I'm writing a brief now also. Yeah. Well, you know, and I've written briefs and it's the strangest thing. 90% of briefs get written that last week. I don't know what it is. It's, no, <laughs> it, it, that, briefs have deadlines, which is nice. I try to create artificial deadlines for myself in novel writing, but it doesn't work because I know. <laughs> you can't trick yourself. Um, Thank you very much for that conversation, but I want to open it up. I think, you know, you've touched on so many fascinating things. I'm sure these folks have much better questions than I have. So I want to open it up to the audience. Hi, I wouldn't say this is a better question than yours. Uh, thank you for that. <laughs> but a question, uh, Mr. Lapava. Do your clients approach you differently when they know that you're a writer as well? I've had a couple of weird stories about that. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the internet access is at Rikers Island, but there must be some kind of it because... 
it'll be the kind of thing where I'll meet a client and they'll be like, you jerk, you are the worst. And then I'll come back the next time and they'll be like, oh, I'm so, thank you for taking my case. As if I had any choice. I didn't just, it was just coincidence. <laughs> but clearly they've done a little of the, this website I've been hearing a lot about Google. They've done some work <laughs> on that. I think they're just happy that they think that somehow I'll be able to parlay that really mild notoriety to their benefit. Unfortunately, probably not true. But anything that makes you feel good about me being your lawyer, I'm willing to, to, <laughs> to run with, even if it's not based on the greatest empirical evidence. I'll run with it because, and this is what I say to our new lawyers. It's like, and I had this conversation with someone recently where I was like, if you take the approach like, I'm a lawyer, all I care about is a statute, I'm here to tell you what you're facing, you take that and you resist in any way, any kind of personal connection with your clients, you're not going to last at this job. You're not. Clients pick up on that. They can tell if you don't care about them at all as human beings. So that connection, that empathy is like one of the things we stress at our office right from day one. Do the empathy, do the connection. I can guide you on what the statute is. I can guide you on how to do this job. I can't do that part for you. Connect. So it, to the extent that it sometimes helps me connect, it's good. Now, my first book had this weird life as a self-published book that sold like 100 copies that people knew about, but nobody really knew it. Until one day, one of my clients said, hey, you know, I, I have your book. And he pulls out this ratty self-published book that he said his brother had given him. His brother had given him the book and he was looking at it and he was about halfway through and he says, but I mean, the, the author, it sounds familiar. And he realized that I was actually representing him on, <laughs> on a case at the same time. And luckily we got a good result on that. So, um, so that was a weird thing, right? Because it's not like I sell a lot of books, let's be honest here. So uh, <laughs> and this guy had bought like a third-hand copy at some thrift store. And only about halfway through, he was like, oh, this is actually my lawyer. <laughs> and there's a lot of joking in these books, so I always kind of like recoil a little, like they're going to think they're re being represented by a clown because there's a lot of comedy and like you pointed out screwball type stuff. But again, it's usually to my benefit. Any other questions? I see one on this side. <clears throat> Hi. Um, do you believe that a young conscientious attorney who works at the DA can have an impact in changing the culture of incarceration and prosecution? And if not, what role do you think that person can play, if any? Well, I don't think a young DA can have much of an impact because it's a very, at least in Manhattan, which is the DA's office that I deal with, it's a very regimented work environment where everything has to be approved by a supervisor. Everything has to be vetted before they're allowed to exercise much discretion. It's about prosecutorial discretion, which I think among the many things that reformers have been able to cast a light on, and including, I think, even John Oliver did a show on, just how much control prosecutors have over how cases end. So the, the short answer is yes, Prosecutors, like judges, are in a position to make a big difference, maybe in a bigger difference than we are, but it still doesn't tempt me to want to do it <laughs> because it's fundamentally flawed work because it doesn't partake enough of that generosity I'm talking about. Not to say they're all bad guys and bad gals. I have friends in that office. I get along with them fine. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that what something is at its core will ultimately affect even uh, at a higher level of complexity. So at the end of the day, you're still taking the approach that the solution, at least too often the solution in your mind is the locking of a, of a human being in a cage. 
And I'm not here to say that that may never be a, an appropriate remedy. I'm just saying that it's become too much of a default remedy in our society and in our system. But, and I hate to be optimistic, I do, I do think that there has been, probably in the last three or four years, there has been some progress made on that level of making them understand, hey, this case that you and I share, meaning you're the DA, I'm the defense attorney, this case is actually a symptom of mass incarceration. And that's a conversation you can have today, especially like on a drug case, or that you can have today that you couldn't have eight years ago. So that's been a positive development. But I've practiced in New York, and, I, and I'm sure there are other parts of the country where they say, I haven't seen no difference. But here in New York, we have seen a difference. Another question there? I was just wondering if you support the movement to close Rikers, and if so, what do you think it would take to achieve that goal? Rikers is a pretty vile place, so I certainly won't argue against closing it. The reason we support closed Rikers is not because we want to close a particular facility. The reason we support that campaign is because in order to close Rikers, you would have to substantially decrease the number of people that you incarcerate. So when I started doing this job, Rikers routinely 15,000 people, 15,000 people. Then it became an average of 12,500. And now I'm at the meetings where the mayor's office is touting the fact that now there's like around eight. Now, let them tout their things. I, I, the bottom line is that's 7,000 fewer people that are incarcerated than were at the height of the late 90s and the early 2000s. So the reason, it's not so much about this physical location, which is, believe me, I've been there many times. You don't want to go there in any way. But it's about, in order to do that, you would have to substantially change the way you view things like pretrial detention. Remember, Rikers Island is a jail, not a prison. What does that mean? That means people awaiting trial who can't afford their bail or sentenced on very minor things, misdemeanors. Because if you get sentenced on a felony, you're probably going to state prison. So something like 80% of people at Rikers Island historically have been there absent any kind of determination of guilt. They're there while the system presumes them innocent, as our system does, which is, again, one of the beautiful things I pointed out earlier, presumption of innocence, beautiful thing. Doesn't mean much if you're sitting at Rikers Island because you can't pay $1,000 bail. Perfect example of what I'm talking about, where we have these lofty ideals, and on paper, we should be proud of them because they're not there in every country. But then the reality comes in, and it's mostly indigent people of color sitting at Rikers Island in the absence of any determination of guilt, pretrial. So yes, close it, but... I mean, if they closed it and opened another jail and put 10,000 people in, I wouldn't feel so great. It's because what I know that they would have to do to do that. We have time for one more question. Yeah. Thank you so much for speaking with us this evening. It's really fascinating. You actually just led right into the question I had, which was about idealism and realism. And I'm curious, you seem to be a student of human nature. And I'm curious if on a scale, an idealism to realism scale, has your experience with the people that you have dealt with in the system or the people that you've dealt with as clients had more to do with your ability to remain somewhat idealistic? Because I think you have to be an idealist somewhat to be a public defender. That may be a faulty assumption. But if you've been able to hold on to that and continue to believe that there's a possible good outcome... Has that been more because of the individuals you've dealt with who are your clients or because of the system? 
I think that what you're driving at is, is two main spheres of things that you can be idealistic about. I can be idealistic about what humanity is, what people are. And then maybe by doing this job, I would meet enough people who had done wrong things that that would somehow get stripped away. Or I could also be idealistic about, let's say, American criminal justice system, where I could say, wow, things like proof beyond a reasonable doubt and presumption of innocence, these are beautiful concepts. The Sixth Amendment right to counsel and due process, this is beautiful. And then I would go to work, and then the, I would see how the actual sausage made and lose that idealism. I don't think I've lost either idealism, but I think the one that has stayed strongest is my belief that the average person will do some really bad things, but in many instances, there's a core there that is highly attractive and redeemable and beautiful, but it's been perverted. Like the way if you had a plant and bought it into your house and you never gave it water, it would brown and die. And then you would look at that plant and say, that's an ugly plant, get it out of my house. But you didn't give it water. And that's how I feel about a lot of the souls that I encounter in my work as a public defender is that at really critical moments of their life, they were just left there. They weren't given water. And if you want to, the analog to water might be love, might be something like support or might be something like any kind of warmth. And I, I meet people who have had just really difficult upbringings and I know what their upbringings are, not the moment I meet them, but once my social worker gets to work with them and puts together a report and I start hearing these facts and then suddenly somebody who's done something admittedly horrible and vile, I have a hard time judging them because I have not gone through what they've gone through. And that's what the job has taught me more than anything. And I think I translate that to just my everyday life. You don't have to be my client for me to give you the benefit of the doubt as a person. doesn't mean I like everybody I meet. I don't. But it does mean that that's a philosophy that, that carries me through. I believe in the primacy of generous love. I believe in that. And nothing in, in 20 years of doing this has hurt that. Now, the criminal justice system, that I'm probably more cynical about. I know that the judge knows what these principles are, but I know that they're also into expediency and they're into a punishment and they don't believe in it as much as I would like them to. I think that's a, a great note for us to end this conversation on. I want to give you a round of applause for sharing your amazing ideas with us. And also thank you for coming out on this Thursday night. Thank you very much, Sergio De La Pava. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Special thanks to the Brooklyn Public Library and all of their staff for having us. We really value the partnership with the library and look forward to more live tapings of the podcast in the future. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace. <laughs>